So today we're taking a look at a passage which uh, apparently I've talked on before. Somebody told me <laughs> uh, this morning that uh, they've heard this preached three different times, one in another church and twice by me. So, uh, all right, here comes number three. So here we go. So this is a passage uh, that we're going to look at. Uh, this is on renewing faith. I asked you about what does expressed love look like. And I think the passage today is maybe one of the most beautiful uh, examples of what expressed love looks like. So let's jump into it. Trudy, on the next slide. Who knows what this says? Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, uh, the man he raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. Sounds amazing. <laughs> and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. We're going to stop here for a second. Just want to set the scene for you a little bit and uh, have you imagine what this might be like. So my mother, uh, this June 26th, will turn 87 years old. And as she uh, grows older and older, uh, she becomes more um, grateful for the promises of more after this life and is especially grateful that um, her faith gives her great confidence that after she draws her last breath here, that which is eternal in her, her soul, will be welcomed by God. And not only does she have great confidence and hope, that that is true, and I believe it too. But she also knows that pretty much our entire family, uh, myself, my brother, my sisters, all of our kids have been raised in the faith. And so while we're all on our own journey and processing in different ways, my mom was just saying yesterday in a text to all of us how grateful she was that uh, we all have this faith that gives us not just instruction for today and hope for today, but also hope for tomorrow. And she's already thinking about, you know, how it will be someday uh, when we're all up there together in that great family reunion that we imagine. So I want you to imagine that for a moment. I want you to think about somebody that maybe you've lost, that had meant a great deal to you. And I want you to imagine that there will be a day. Now, I just want to throw a little caveat here. My vision of what heaven is like, get ready for weird. <laughs> Actually, it's not that weird, but my vision of what heaven is like is the best thing we can imagine. Whatever that picture is, if you want to borrow imagery from uh, the Bible, streets of gold and mansion and uh, all that stuff, that's fine. But whatever you can imagine, the best of what it could possibly be, I just think it's exponentially greater than that. Like whatever our greatest joys or whatever our greatest dreams might be, whatever that is, whatever that picture is, it's just going to be a whole lot better than that because we're so limited in our thinking and, get, and capacity. How can we possibly imagine what could be? But I want you to imagine this metaphor, that we're all around a table, and sitting across from you is somebody that you deeply loved who you lost. And uh, maybe it's somebody from your distant past, maybe it's somebody from a more recent past, but there you are, reunited again, breaking bread together again. How's it feel in your imagination? What's going on in your mind? What's going on in your heart? 
The other beautiful piece of this is uh, our human relationships are really messy. And so just going to add another nuance to this. Sometimes we think about those people from our past, and in some certain circumstances, there's some baggage with that. And we're, we're 92.5% excited to see that person <laughs> on the other side. But we're thinking about that 7.5% that just drove us a little crazy or that pain. Sometimes it's much more than that. But I think in what's to come, I think that gets resolved. I think the picture of what's to come is that full healing happens, that whatever has been broken here on this plane is restored and made whole on that one. And so it really is something to give us hope. So now I want you to picture again, you're around the table with people that you've had to say goodbye to and experience the grief of loss. And they're better than you've ever known them. They're more well than you ever experienced. And you're there together in each other's company again. How's it feel? My guess is it feels pretty good. My guess is if that really happened or happens, uh, it's going to be a moment of great, deep joy. That's what's happening in this story. Uh, in the previous chapter of John, it's John 11, which recounts this really incredible scene uh, of the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus was a dear friend of Jesus, if you're not familiar with him. I won't do the whole story, but in brief, uh, he was a dear friend of Jesus, and he got sick. He was about a day's journey away doing a ministry up on the Jordan River somewhere. As soon as he got sick and Mary and Martha, Lazarus's sisters, knew that he was ill, uh, they sent word to Jesus to get back here uh, to do something because we're worried. And Jesus already knew by the time the messengers got to him at the Jordan, uh, which was, again, a full day's journey away. He already knew that, they were, that he was dead. So he hung around where he was for a few more days, and then he decided to make the journey back. He makes it into the village of Bethany, which isn't that far from the city of Jerusalem, which is where all the major festivals for Judaism happen. And the day that he chose to arrive was day four. J Lazarus had been dead four days. It's not an accident uh, that John gives us this detail, uh, because in the ancient Jewish tradition, there was this idea that if you were dead, uh, there was like three days of hope, uh, that maybe you'll be resuscitated somehow. But once you hit day four, I don't know where this all came from, but once you hit day four, all hope was lost. There was no hope whatsoever uh, that your loved one was going to be restored. Day four is the day that Jesus chose to come back. Martha rushes out to meet him because Martha's the one that's more practical. Uh, she hears that he's on the edge of town, and she's the one who's all hospitality-oriented. She's the one that's going to roll out the welcome act. So she rushes out to him, falls at his feet. They had this great conversation. She uh, kind of says some things which we can take a little bit weird, kind of criticizes him a little bit perhaps, like, oh, if you'd been here, things had been different, which she kind of meant as a compliment, but also kind of a little bit of pain in her heart. If you'd have gotten here sooner, maybe, but you're here on day four when all hope is lost. They make their way back to Lazarus's home, and there's Mary. And Mary's different than Martha, whereas Martha's all about getting things done and kind of focused on logic and intellect and all that. Mary wears her heart on her sleeve. Mary heard that Jesus was on the edge of town, but she was just so stricken with grief she couldn't move. So there she was at a similar exchange. And then finally, on this day four, when all hope is lost, Jesus asked to be taken uh, to where Lazarus was entombed. 
He's walking along and there's crowds of people because he was very popular. And he's seeing all these people uh, who are just overcome with grief to the point where they can't even see life in front of them anymore. And at this point, the shortest verse in the whole Bible shows up, Jesus wept. And when he wept, there's a little interesting caveat, he didn't weep like with a normal sadness kind of grief. Actually, if you go back to the original language, it was an angry grieving, not an anger uh, pointed to the people in any way, but, but an anger that death itself had become so powerful of an agent in our lives and in our life experience that it blinded us to the greater other we call God and the hope that this greater other provides for us. He's angry that that had clouded our vision. He gets to the edge of the tomb and he makes ridiculous requests. Roll away the stone that was covering up Lazarus's tomb. Uh, people think he's crazy, but they've learned to kind of roll with Jesus by this point because he does crazy. <laughs> the stone is rolled away. Jesus yells out, Lazarus, come out. And they hear some clanking and Lazarus comes out, and he's alive again. On the day when all hope was lost, hope is restored. Now, we can debate on the literal side of this uh, story uh, until we're blue in the face, and unfortunately, nobody captured this with their iPhone uh, back in Jesus' day, so we'll never know the literalness of this story. But I can tell you that there have been millions and millions and millions of people who've experienced the metaphorical reality of this story for sure, that they thought they were dead and gone. They thought all hope was lost and the power of God and God's love spoke into their lives and everything changed. I could tell you that's my story on multiple occasions. There are milestones in my life when I thought it was done that I thought the future <laughs> was not going to be what I'd ever hoped. And I thought it was just over. And the love of God spoke in and said, the day is not done. That's what's happening with Mary here. She's experienced the love of God in one of the most personal, profound ways possible. Her brother, who she loves, who also had provided for her, undoubtedly. Lazarus was pretty well off, apparently. Uh, he had his own tomb. That says something. Uh, and he was gone, and she was grief-stricken, but then he's brought back. And she is overwhelmed because here they are having dinner, and he's right there. When all hope was lost, Jesus showed up. The love of God showed up, and life continued. So what does she do in response to this? Well, Martha's busy. Uh, dealing with the hors d'oeuvres and all that stuff. You know, there was a story earlier in Jesus' ministry where Martha and Mary had a sister spat uh, because Martha was ticked off that Mary wasn't helping her in the kitchen like Martha thought Mary should. Mary uh, didn't want to roll any hot dogs in the croissant things and bake those like we do. Uh, she wanted to sit and listen to Jesus. So she just sat at his feet and it ticked Mary off or ticked Martha off. Jesus said to Martha at that point, you do your thing, Martha. Let Mary do her thing. You love being in the kitchen and doing what you're doing. Mary's doing the right thing for who she is and how she's made. So Martha was not upset at this dinner that Mary was just sitting there uh, humming around. But what does Mary do? She gets this jar of perfume. 
It's about uh, 12 ounces. This is 16 ounces, so it's a little bit smaller than this. And uh, this would have been a very fancy vase with a long neck on top. The vase itself would have been very expensive. Uh, and probably the vase and its contents represented uh, her dowry. Um, we don't really get it uh, here in this uh, thing as much, but the expense, the, the cost of this 12-ounce jar of nard uh, was, uh, oh, it doesn't say in this one, uh, was 300 denarii. Uh, one denarii is one day's wage. So we're talking about a year's wage here. In Napa, California, um, the kind of the threshold uh, for household income that puts you, you know, in a sustainable place where you can afford to live in Napa Valley. This is a, uh, about a recent, maybe the last year and a half of this data came out. That number that Social Security looks at, the household income is $100,000. That's the threshold. Where if you're much below that, it's a struggle. If you're above that, you're able to survive and maybe even save a little bit. $100,000. Imagine this is $100,000. And Mary brings it out. She breaks the neck, which releases the scent of this nard uh, into the room and decides to pour it out on Jesus' feet. $100,000 worth of perfume. This nard, it sounds awful. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, for my anniversary coming up that I give Lynn a bottle of eau de nard, you know. <laughs> I don't think that's going to go over real well. Um, but this nard was actually very expensive because the flower from which they got it could only be found at that time in the, in the heights of elevation in the Himalayan mountains. And so it was very rare, very hard to come by, and uh, obviously priceless. So she dumps it all over her feet. Why is she doing this? Because she's overwhelmed. She's in awe. She's in wonder of what's happened. Uh, in a recent interview with Brene Brown, who we've featured here on video a couple of times, uh, written incredible books, um, uh, does a lot of social, uh, sociological work, uh, expert in vulnerability and emotional understanding and all this. She was recently asked in this interview, what do you think are you know, among the most important um, emotions for us to sort of develop? And she said, wonder and awe. And asked why wonder and awe. She said, well, when we're in awe, like if you think about things that happen to us that just kind of leave us breathless or scenes or vistas in nature that leave us breathless, she says, in that moment, a couple things happen. One, we're incredibly humbled because we realize how small we are and we're a part of something so much bigger and we're humbled in a very good way. And she said, the second thing is, is usually when we have those kind of moments, we also recognize that we're a part of this thing. We're connected to this thing. Mary in this scene was having one of those moments of wonder and awe. And her response of love, of the love she experienced of God, was to love Jesus in this tangible, sacrificial way of this is what I have and I'm laying it all before you. However, somebody else was in the room wondering about all this. Some people were certainly overwhelmed and kind of wished they had their own uh, bottle of nard uh, to open up for Jesus. Uh, but some other people were a little more critical, as you would guess people would be prone to do. So on the next screen, we get that reaction. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, 
he often stole some for himself. But he raises an interesting question, doesn't he? Uh, he raises an interesting question that I think probably all of us at some point in our lives have wondered about. Probably not uh, on our own spending habits, probably not when we've broken a vase, perhaps, because when we do it, it's okay, but when other people do it, it's, it's wasteful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe uh, you saw somebody do something extravagant for a vacation, a special vacation getaway for a special moment in time. Maybe it was a birthday that somebody got celebrated and kind of went overboard with it. Maybe it was a love gift on an anniversary, I, whatever. Uh, maybe there was a time when you saw this. Sometimes there are obvious examples of terrible wastefulness and stupidity. I'm thinking of uh, politicians who, in the midst of COVID, decided to go to the French Laundry and unmask and take the whole staff to the French Laundry. <laughs> it's like, come on, are you kidding me? That's just dumb all over the place. But, you know, there are reasons to, uh, at times, pull the trigger on an incredible restaurant, an incredible dining experience, an incredible space, an incredible party. There are times to do that. But at times we look at it and just think, like Judas, should we have done this? Well, Jesus has a response to this, which is fascinating on the next screen. What should we talk about? Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. I'm not sure if she knew that was what's going on, but John is giving this sort of on the back end of the story. He knows where it's all going. Uh, in other words, it's just a love gift. She probably didn't know, but will know eventually. That's really important. But then he says this statement, which is problematic for us. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Some people take this to mean that we can excuse ourselves uh, from needing to deal with the poor or be generous toward the poor, because the poor are always going to be here, can't do anything about that, so let's just have a nice party and just forget about it since there's nothing we can do. Well, that would be a mistake. We got to remember that Jesus is Jewish, and he was a deeply devout Jew. He believed deeply in what he was uh, living out of. He was trying to live out of his Judaism. He was a Jewish reformer, so he's changing the ways that uh, Scripture was interpreted for Jew Jewish people at that time. He's not abandoning the Jewish tradition at all, and the Jewish tradition is very strong on taking care of the poor. Some of these might be really familiar with you, uh, like uh, in one of the stories that we have called the Book of Ruth, uh, you have these two women who are coming back to Naomi's homeland, Ruth's mother-in-law, and they've got nothing. Uh, their husbands are, have died. They've got really nobody to look after them. And so Naomi sends Ruth out to glean from the fields when it's time for harvest. Well, the law in the books was is that people, when they would harvest, would leave uh, some of the harvest untouched so that the poor in the community could go and fend for themselves, leave some for somebody else. Don't take all the profits for yourself, but provide even with that. Sort of a model of thinking. But there were other things, laws on the books, that made sure that the most vulnerable people in society were taken care of. The most vulnerable people in society then and now are women and the worst situation, widowhood, children and the worst situation, orphans, and immigrants, worst situation, refugees, who are just running for their lives. And in each of these scenarios, the law got increasingly nuanced for Jewish people to take care of those among you. Jesus himself, by the way, was dirt poor. Uh, he was lucky to have a meal. 
he kind of scrapped as much as he could, relied on the hospitality of others. So he knew what it was like to be poor in the, in the presence of a regime that made sure he stayed poor. So when Jesus talked in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks in code to people who had the ears to hear it, and hopefully I've helped you read with that code, with the secret glasses and everything, uh, to know what he's talking about when he talks about speaking truth to power. He meant to challenge the systems that were there because that's a very Jewish thing. It comes from the heart of God who loves all God's people, who wants all the children to have equality and equity, and where there are systems in place and where there are individuals that are keeping people down when they should be lifted up, the Jewish nation is called to do something about it, just like that. And so Jesus is known for this stuff. And so he's not saying anything at all about blow off the poor. He's saying, yeah, of course we do that. That's just who we are. But at the same time, there are times to uncork it and to really uh, celebrate the moment. So you are free to do that. But what do we do with that as Christian people? What do we do with this poor among you? And how do we translate what Jesus said and did into our day and life? Uh, Bono, lead singer of U2, one of the greatest human beings that ever lived, I might add. <laughs> Certainly one of the greatest rock stars. Um, back in the 1980s, when HIV AIDS was rampaging uh, through Africa, uh, an entire continent, uh, which has experienced great vulnerability in many ways, um, they did a, a concert uh, called Band-Aid. Anybody remember Band-Aid from the 1980s? It's like everybody who had, you know, any kind of top 40 hit from the 80s got a line in this song, and Bono was one of them. Well, they did this thing, and it was great. I mean, it, it brought a lot of attention to the plight of the folks who weren't getting the kind of drugs and things that they needed, and they raised a gazillion dollars for it. But after it was all over, uh, Bono and others looked at what they actually achieved, uh, with their trying to raise money for the poor. And they found out that, it, <laughs> that what they did was actually what their concert was called, Band-Aid. It just gave a little Band-Aid for a moment on a problem that was really cancer and need to be addressed in a bigger way. Bono uh, then uh, partnered with a friend, and they started an organization called One.org. One.org speaks into national leadership around the globe, asking them to rethink their policies to make sure that the poorest in the world at least have enough to survive, to raise the floor so they're able to make it. Why do they do that? Because they knew that there are systems in place that need to be challenged. There are systems in place, even in America, that keep people where they are. While other people might flourish to ridiculous levels, other people just can't seem to get a break. Warren Buffett used to talk about this. In fact, he still does. Uh, Warren Buffett, uh, Berth, uh, Berth, Berkshire Hathaway um, of renown and uh, one of the great economic voices in our time, he has said repeatedly that it's ridiculous that in our country, his executive assistant pays more in taxes than he does, one of the richest men in America and in the world, because of the way the code is written. Jeff Bezos, uh, he's uh, kind of the, the brunt of a lot of late night comedy because he has yet to pay much in taxes in the United States, even though he is one of the richest men in the world, while some of his employees uh, are barely able to have a living wage, while his cash just continues to stack. These are examples of a problem. 
And so long as the people that have the most, who have the most power as well as money, as long as they are in charge of how things are written, it's never going to change. And so people like Jesus, who's talking as a poor person to other poor people, he's saying, there's a way that we need to speak into this because this has to change. You may not be comfortable with me saying this stuff right now because it sounds kind of political, like you're trying to mess with civic life. Yes, I am. And the reason why I'm doing that is because the Jesus that we claim to follow did that and instructed his people to do it as well. There are healthy ways to do it and bad ways to do it. I don't have all the answers, but what I can say is that if we are motivated by the kingdom of God, then we have a leading modus operandi to say to the world leaders, it is entirely appropriate and expected that human beings should be treated humanely. And that there should be mechanisms in place to make sure that everybody at least has a living shot and are not punished for their poverty more than they already are. That's a kingdom of God thing. That's a Jesus thing. That's a Jewish thing. And if we claim to be followers of Jesus, that's an us thing. That's a crosswalker thing. How that looks, I don't know for you. Hopefully just reading about it and understanding that there are things to know that maybe your particular favorite uh, television news channel isn't quite telling you everything on both sides and everything in between. Maybe it's for you to get more information. Maybe it's for you to be a part of a cause. Maybe it's for you to write a letter. Maybe it's for you to show up at something to say enough is enough. It's a Jesus thing to do because God cares about the people in our culture and the systems are the things that keep people where they are. Enough of that. I want to talk about a different issue that is also a really present here. I'm wondering about the contrast between Mary and Lazarus, not Lazarus, <laughs> Mary and Judas. You got Mary who is so filled with love uh, that she blows her dowry on Jesus' feet. And then you have Judas who's witnessing this whole thing and he criticizes her. And we know that within a couple of days, he's going to completely betray Judas or betray Jesus. You know why that's fascinating to me is both Mary and Judas surely were captivated by God's love at the beginning. That's why they paid attention to Jesus in the first place. That's why they were won over to the cause. Now, John the Baptist, you remember him. Uh, he was a true uh, classic hellfire brimstone Baptist preacher. He kind of defined it. Uh, he was the guy that stood by the river and told everybody, you better get it together because the king is coming and he's ticked off and he's going to wipe you out if you don't change your life right now. Repent. So it was very fear-based, very get-it-together based and very effective. A lot of people heard that and a lot of people uh, started to get baptized and clean up their act because they thought that any day now, it's all going to come. Fear can do that really well. Fear can motivate us to change in a heartbeat if we have to. Um, but it doesn't transform us necessarily. It's not in a good way. Fear can give us PTSD, <laughs> but fear is not going to motivate us necessarily into better people. Jesus comes along. He gets baptized by John. This crazy thing happens. He has 40 days in the wilderness to sort out what happened to him. He comes back in, and he doesn't talk like John. He goes in a completely different direction. Rather than hellfire and brimstone and you better or else, Jesus talks about the pervasive love of God for everybody. The first sermon that he gives in his hometown in Nazareth almost gets him killed. Why? Because he's not talking about the king that's going to come and kick everybody's butt. He's talking about the God of the universe that actually loves everybody, even your enemies, Jewish people. And they try to throw him off a cliff. 
It's the love of God that compelled people to follow Jesus. What happened to Judas? What happened to take him from one who was wooed into following by the love of God flowing through Jesus to selling them out just a few years later? Why was Mary so stoked, so you know, captivated by love that it caused her to express her love so fully? Well, I think for this, we got to turn to some relationship experts. So I want to talk just a moment uh, from some stuff from the Gottman Institute. So John Gottman was a researcher of all things marriage. Uh, You may remember him a little bit. He was featured on 60 Minutes and some other news programs back in the day. Uh, This was a guy that could be in a room. uh, 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 Marcus Gladwell talks about him. Malcolm Gladwell talks about him. He could sit in a room with a couple that's having an argument about something and tell you with 90-something percent uh, precision whether or not that couple was going to make it, whether or not their marriage was going to make it. He could tell by virtue of the tone, the language that they used, uh, how their body posture was, Uh, And like I said, over 90% accurate with just, I think it was like 90 seconds or less, he could tell. In his research, he talks about uh, the four horsemen that come to kill relationships. There are these four things that we allow to live or not in our relationship that seek to destroy that which was once there. Has to do with contempt, criticism, this kinds of things. I think over the time, something happened in the relationship between Judas and his relationship with God that allowed the better things to fade and allowed these other four horsemen type things to find their way in. So Gottman, this this past week, I'm on his email list. He sent out this flyer, six hours to a healthy marriage. It sounds really trite, but actually uh, he makes some good points. So what, would, what do we do to make sure that we're on the Mary end of the spectrum and don't fall victim to the Judas end of the spectrum? How do we keep our love alive so we don't lose the love and feeling, <laughs> so we don't find ourselves one day selling out Jesus and selling out ourselves in the process, losing everything that we once thought was so wonderful? Well, one of the things that he says uh, in this uh, little lift out was to start the day and end the day uh, with love. In a marital relationship, which is the most um, potentially intimate relationship among equals uh, that we have in this earth. So there's some relationship there to what we're talking about in faith. He says, a start and end the day thinking about love. So in a marriage context, a start the day uh, saying something lovely, doing something lovely for the one that you love. At the end of the day, it's same thing, words of affirmation, uh, some kind of gesture of love, expressing love, that kind of a thing. And that makes me wonder, what if we started doing that in our faith relationship? I love that Nicole was so honest and let us know that she indeed also, even though she is a lawyer, she is human. <laughs> uh, that uh, she, although she loves meditation and loves what that's all about, she doesn't nail it all the time. Neither do I, and probably neither do you. But what a difference it might make if we just start the day with a little wonder and awe. Start the day with just a moment or two, uh, focusing our attention on the presence of God in our lives and being open to that. What a difference that would make. What a difference it would make if before we closed our eyes at sleep, we did a similar kind of thing, like we trust God with the day, we thank God for the day, and we look forward to another day uh, with the help of God. What difference would that make in our mindset and our capacity to experience God going through the day?
Another thing that uh, he mentions in this, and six hours in a week doesn't take that much, especially when you're knocking out stuff in the morning and in the evening, seven days a week. One of the things he said that is important to do uh, for couples, and I would say this is true for faith as well, is to take a date night. Um, this is something that gets blown off quick when life gets busy with couples. Uh, we forget about it. We get too busy. We say we'll get to it when we get to it, and we never get to it. And we get into a rut. We get into a pattern uh, where we never foster uh, very much uh, the romance side of that relationship. And I'm certain that if you've been in any kind of a relationship like that of any length of time, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you get in, you just kind of get in your groove. Well, breaking that up with a date night, so to speak, is investing a few hours a week just to that, where you're no longer Netflix binging, but you're just spending time together for each other. It's really, really important for a human relationship but I'm wondering about a faith relationship. How do you carve out time just for God in your week? Do you carve out any moments to get into nature, moments to read something that is going to inspire you or deepen your relationship with God, listen to a podcast, listen to music, do something that you know is deeply entwined with the person of God? What would it look like if you chose to carve into your world a date with God during the week, just for a couple hours? What difference would it make? I have a hunch it'll be just like with a marital relationship, that you're going to start to foster things that maybe started to get lost along the way. The final thing that he talks about is once a week having a uh, kind of a kind of a maintenance meeting uh, between uh, the husband and wife, the, the two partners, the spouses, uh, to just kind of review the week that was there, make sure there weren't any sticky points that you wish things were different or miscommunication, and then looking ahead to the next week about you know, how are we going to handle this week and how do we need to navigate this and how can we make sure that we avoid problem areas? You know, I think this was actually a good idea for our faith. There's a guy who beat me to it, though. His name was Ignatius, and he had what was called the prayer of examine. He recommends doing it twice a day. That may be too much for some of us, uh, but at least once a week where you take a look at your week in the rearview mirror and you're, you're going through, all right, well, how was I aligned with God? How was I enveloped in the love of God this week? How you know, was I, was I fostering my relationship with God uh, through these practices? Uh, how did it go for me? And honestly, even to say back to God like we would uh, in a human relationship, I'm kind of disappointed this didn't go this way, God. I was kind of asking for this, and I didn't really get any response, God. Is that okay for us to do? <laughs> Absolutely it is, because it gets it out of us for the one and it starts to open up the conversation with us and God to start seeing some healing happen. You know what happens in a human relationship when we hold on to that stuff? It comes back to bite us. We begin to become critical of the one that we're in relationship with. When we're not honest about how we're feeling, about how God has been in our life, even if it's negative, the same thing happens. And I wonder if Judas was the same way. He had his own expectations that were based on his theology and his cosmology about what this anointed one was supposed to do, and Jesus just wasn't tracking. Maybe he never even brought it up to Jesus. Maybe he didn't have to, but it led to criticism and contempt to the point where he was able to sell out Jesus. So I hope this alone has given you a moment of examine to wonder about how you're orchestrating your life 
so that you can be more on the merry side, which is where life flourishes, which is what Paul is talking about. All the stuff that we do to try to impress God, to keep God on our side, which is based on a transactional thinking and a wrath of God's side. Paul says that's all rubbish. It's not what it's about. It's about investing ourselves in this dynamic relationship with God that we understand through Christ. When that happens, life sings. Paul also broke an alabaster vase. It was his own life because he was so captivated by the love of God. It is what motivated his life. May it be for you too. Let's pray together. Let's see what God's messing with us. And then we'll end with a, uh, a, an adaptation of the Lord's Prayer in just a minute. So I just want you to take yourself back to this scene one more time. Maybe it's you in heaven at some point uh, with the loved ones that you've said goodbye to, that you're reunited again. Maybe that's too hard for you to see. So maybe you just join the scene in Scripture and you're seeing Mary. You're imagining yourself as Mary and wondering what it would be like to have your brother who is dead alive again. Your heart is filled with love. All you can do is want to love in return. In that moment, you recognize how good God is all the time. Even when life is hard, God is still good. And in this moment, you can't miss it. So what are you going to do? Where are you? Where are you on the spectrum? God, can your spirit help us right now to just help us identify where our level of love and passion is in our relationship with you? Are we white hot like Mary was? Are we dead cold like Judas? Crosswalk, can you identify it? Well, God, you know that we can't sustain the height of passion forever, that parties are parties for a reason, anniversaries and milestones are that way for a reason. But I also know, God, that you long for us to be an intimate, growing, deepening relationship with us, that our maturity as human beings would deepen. And so, Spirit of God, can you, can you nudge us and I, help us identify what we might do today in response to this passage that might help us deepen our relationship with you to the point where we could come back next week and say, I did this thing and it made a difference. Help us, Spirit, see what we might do today. God, you call us into a world that is still broken, that is still operating on bad news, that longs to hear truly good news. May we as your people, as we recognize moments to celebrate and break open the vase, 
people who stand up for things based on your love for all people. May we be the new fragrance that permeates this creation, your work through us, to let us know that there is a greater other we call God that is worth celebrating and honoring. And may that scent uh, woo people to your presence, and may they find themselves loved and wooed by you again. May the world be changed somehow to some degree because we have chosen to be faithful to you. Thank you, God, for being faithful to us. Now, God, we choose to pray this prayer, this adaptation of the Lord's Prayer. You open your eyes and join me. Say this together. Eternal Spirit, earth maker, pain bearer, life giver, source of all this is and that shall be, father and mother of us all, loving God in whom is heaven. The hallowing of your name echo through the universe. The way of your justice be followed by peoples of the world. Your heavenly will be done by all created beings. Your commonwealth of peace and freedom sustain our hope and come on earth. With the bread we need for today, feed us. And the hurts we absorb from one another, forgive us. In times of temptation and test, strengthen us. From trials too great to endure, spare us. From the grip of all that is evil, free us. For you reign in the glory of the power that is love now and forever. Amen. Thanks for coming today. I hope you had a good experience, and we will see you next week. All right.